32 counties. 32 questions. My name is Una. I'm Andrea. From uh, famous from Clareburn Live. <laughs> and this is United Ireland. Ireland. This week's county. We're back to the counties. I miss them. I read it. Me too. <laughs> Kerry. And this week's question. Kerry, the UN Amalton Laundry Survivors. Will a UN investigation change how Ireland treats survivors of institutional abuse? But first, the ongoing general election aftermath. I think I've said everything that I want to say. I am so over the... I think that's what's meant to happen to the electorate though, isn't it? Get us bored so we're just like, oh, who cares anymore? Well, if you want to keep reading and listening to our thoughts on this, you can always read the 9,000 word post (laughs) that I put on our Patreon or listen to the hour-long audio version of it uh, because everybody has time for that. They do. uh, The government formation is forming uh, which calls to mind... (laughs) Finnegale are being very passive aggressive <laughs> a little I think and not not incredibly humble and a bit kind of smirky I kind of feel like it's when um, you know if you're a teenager and your new boyfriend is some like DJ and your mum is like oh fine go 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 out with the DJ then see where that'll get you and then I don't know what happens. Your DJ like, turns what out. What else are they meant to do? Scarlet. Five, five years later, your DJ's Calvin Harris getting paid <laughs> 700 grand. To making de- the best tunes ever. Or not just sitting at home, not making <laughs> tunes. We'll see what happens with that metaphor. Will we find love in a hopeless place? <laughs> Is this the first time Finnegan may have been compared to Calvin Harris? I think so. <laughs> Potentially. Um, but yeah. I what think- else are they meant to do though? Like, they're absolutely mortified. They have to come out looking like they're like strong or typical egocentric we are a party who are going to take the high road Mm. go into opposition do what's right for the country and build ourselves back up again because we lost this election and they're like haha fuck you now you have to try and salvage this shit sort it out yeah Um, yeah so it'll be interesting actually to see if I mean look we always said going into this election that we probably thought it was going to be election one of two Mm. um and it'll be interesting to see if Fine Gael do enter opposition and there is a government made up of other parties uh, who are not Fine Gael. What? I was very delighted to see the Sock Dems have a good bit of... Sp- what? I need a good metaphor. Lead in their pencil. <laughs> is that a good one? Okay, we'll go with that or one. Something else. But when they were like, we cancelled our meeting with Fine Gael. They're just show ponying and we're not having any of it. Nice one. Yes, suck down. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the, if Fine Gael do go into opposition and if there isn't another election and if a government is formed with uh, Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil and, you know. I just can't see Sinn Féin going. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I, we'll see what happens. But it would be, be like when you think about it, like Fine Gael in 2011, that was the most seats that they'd ever had in the history of their party. And... Um, all of the people who kind of got elected for Fine Gael then like you could have put anyone up for Fine Gael and they would have got elected much like Sinn Féin in this election but a lot of those people have never been opposition politicians you know Mm. like Owen Murphy Simon Harris people like that they were elected for the first time in 2011 they went straight into government they've been in in power for a decade Leo went from being a councillor to a TD to a minister within five years so it will be interesting to see what they're like in opposition if they end up in opposition and if we don't have another election which I think is likely and could be like really good for them yeah Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> um, 
Andre, you were on Claire Byrne on Monday night. Tell me, I was in the cinema. I'm sorry, I missed it. I'm a bad friend. <laughs> You're lucky you missed it. It was a very bizarre situation because it was pitched as, will you come and talk about the formation of the government? Perfect. Delighted. Lovely. Um, so for the first maybe like quarter of the show, that's how it went. People were doing their bits. And it was like, there was the panel of like Neve Horan, etc. And then there was like a stacked audience of like people from different parties and blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden it just turned and it just turned into a Sinn Féin bashing brigade. Um, and it was like, OK, well, this is bizarre that we're this is like how it's going to roll. And it went from how do we think it's going to form into back to Paul Quinn murder, then over to Paul Williams to talk about shadowy figures and then straight into um a woman whose sister was murdered by the IRA. So it was very clear that this was the agenda of where it was going to go Mm. and how that was going to be framed, which it was not how it was pitched. And I think if you're going to talk about a formation of a government, fine. If you're going to talk about the legacy of the IRA and and its victims, like making it, like pitch it as that, but to have it as a formation and then to bring it in that direction, I thought Mm. it was very I think you kind of lose the, you know a certain degree of integrity with regard to wanting to kind of take heat out of a debate for example I don't know how that was if it was pitched as that when you have someone like Paul Williams on you know like in fairness do you know what I mean he's there for the clickbait he's there for the clickbait this is Neve Horan and Paul Williams yeah if well I mean Paul I think more so is a guy who's made a career out of you know um, sensationalism and turning really serious organised crime into kind of soap opera tabloid entertainment and I don't But Neve Horan is also one who likes to talk about climate change being good for our holidays and stuff Yeah I don't want to talk about Neve Horan because she's (laughs) (laughs) She She made very good points and she got roasted online um, which I thought was unfair Um, But you know Paul Williams it's like you know making up names for gangsters all of his life and having a very you know, a kind of cartoonish um, point of view and agenda and basically going around thinking he's Batman, <laughs> you know, solving crime. Um, so, yeah, those are my opinions on, on Paul Williams. Anyway, moving on. Um, in other Before news... Before we move on. Oh, go on. My highlight, just to, I suppose, highlight the differences between maybe uh, some of the Fine Gael social media strategy and Sinn Féin's. So, uh, as was pointed out on Claire Byrne last night Mary Lou was off doing the Macarena yesterday oh, I saw that yeah but then your ma- your man Young Finnegan was like Mary Lou doing the Macarena gross but then you go on to Sinn Féin's Twitter how was that gross because he was he, uh, like the most entitled Young Finnegan I've ever seen anyway that's uh, not I'm sure they're today. a nice person yeah uh, but then Sinn Féin's uh Twitter this morning was the footage of Mary Lou doing the macarena with the comment with the with the caption caption thank you the rotating Taoiseach <laughs> five stars five stars five stars on that content very good speaking of general election content um, there's an event in Dublin on Thursday uh, which is run by Liz Carroll and uh, she runs a series of events called Coffee and Circumvention which are kind of very nerdy conversations about democracy transparency digital threats to democracy and it's on in Temple Bar galleries and it's called Debriefing the Election Who Cracked the Code and Ellen Coyne myself and Rachel Lavin who's a data journalist at Sunday Business Post will be speaking uh, I think you can register for free on Eventbrite if you just Google Coffee and Circumvention 
Um, it might be. We might even share it. We might even. We might even share it. We might even share it. Wow, what a revelation! <laughs> How so, does social media work? Amazing. <laughs> um, so there's that. If you want to keep uh, talking about the election, which obviously we're going to be doing for Evs. Um, in other news, two really tragic uh, deaths this week: uh, the death of Caroline Flack and also the death of um, the DJ and producer, um, a musician, Andrew Weatherall. Um, you know the Caroline Flack thing is really sad I don't think we're going to go into it here there's been an awful lot written about it Um, and I think it throws up a lot of conversations around social media I'm actually writing a piece about it at the moment for the Times at the weekend so um, just thinking a a lot about kindness and how um, people play their lives out on social media and the negativity that people throw at people um, and And just cancel culture yes and people remembering that people make mistakes and allowing people to grow from their mistakes and accepting and maybe working with them and r- rather than just saying you're over. Yeah, there's very little room for that, I think, online. Yeah. Um, and I think we all need to examine our own personal participation and how we drag people or respond to people or pour our hearts out on the Internet. That's uh, what WhatsApp groups are for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, but this week it's all about Kerry and you will be delighted to hear that um County facts are back. County facts are back. And the Queen of Irish history, the Magellan, the Columbus, the Enya, the (laughs) Teresa, what's your one around the world? What's her name? Lowe. Teresa Mannion? No, No, Teresa Lowe. Um, Of podcasting. Andre Horan is back with the County Facts. I'm just going to sit back and let the completely accurate information flow all over me. Andre, go. Oh, I've missed them so much. Kerry, population, 147,707. Uh, the Kerry Crest motto is cooperation, help and friendship. And maybe that's what the uh, motto of social media could start to be. Mm. Um, Kerry has many... I was just saying earlier, it's Kerry is kind of like superlative central. Yeah. It's like a lot of ESTs. Um, but a lot of what? ESTs, like biggest. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've never heard that. I that was some kind of <laughs> thing. therapy. No, it's just my thing. Okay, cool. Did you know when I was younger, I was like, I don't want to be like this. I want to be an EST mm, of something. It. Youngest. Best. Mm, trying to be the best throws up too many issues. Okay. That's not a fact. King of Kerry. Ring of Kerry. (laughs) 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 Well, I'm sure there was a King of Kerry. But the Ring of Kerry, Dingle Peninsula, Star Wars on the Skellig Michael. Mm -hmm. um, But also on Skellig Michael was monastic settlements from the 8th century. And mucho puffins. Mucho, mucho. Like... How gorgeous. I didn't know that. So I many love a little puffin. So many puffins that in that's the, the magic dress. That's not a puffin. <laughs> uh, so many puffins that in the Star Wars one, which was um the one that Ray was in the first time. I have Andrew something. is shrugging his shoulders. What kind of man are you? Rise <laughs> of the Jedi Skywalker. Rise of the Skywalker guy. I've never seen Star Wars. Any of them? None. Wow. So I'm it, not really like that into that space fantasy space, thing, space opera fantasy no. um, well in Rise of the Skywalker Guy um, <laughs> when Skellig Vahil was on Star Wars for the first time there were so many puffins that they were like well it's gonna we could either take them all out and post or make a virtue of them so they made them into the little you haven't seen it so I don't know why I'm looking at you explaining this <laughs> the little puffin uh, guy he yeah. looks kind of like a Furby puffin space uh, how bird how did puffins end up on Skellig Michael 
I should know per- that because I was a county fact person, but... Per- practice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, Kerry has the world's biggest collection of All-Ireland winner medals. Boo. Because they've won 37 times, um, which means that some people have like up to five. So they didn't... So do fucking... So does Stephen Cluxton have five All-Ireland medals. Yeah, Stephen. Good guy. (laughs) (laughs) I was asked to go on and talk about bows on this show during next week. I was like, oh yeah, cool. Sucker. (laughs) It's more about human rights. Anyway, uh, another EST, the highest mountain in Ireland, Karen Tuchel. And this was my favourite thing when I was in geography. Uh, The McGillicuddy Reeks. Mm -hmm. It's a lovely word. Say, Say it. McGillicuddy Reeks. Does it say, feel nice to say. Feels great. This Andrew? Some good. Yes. Yes. Andrew, <laughs> Andrew can you please say it in the microphone? Please. With your like announcer voice. <laughs> the McGillicuddy Reeks. Yes. Stunning. We need, to, we need to start getting some ASMR <laughs> dollar from you. Yeah. Sure. No problem. Um, well, the range in that McGillicuddy Reeks is 3,409 feet. Stunning. Tom Crean is an Antarctic explorer and he's such a sound bitch because (laughs) (laughs) not only did he go exploring the South Pole, they got into trouble in ice, which probably isn't there anymore, climate change. But him and five others jumped ship, got on these five ships and went exploring cross country till they got to uh, some HQ and brought back help and saved everyone's life. And then he went back to Kerry, to Anaskill, where we opened a pub called the South Pole. Explorer oh. and Sessioner. Stunning. Anna Skull, also home to what is my, my favourite white pudding in the world. Ashes. Served in Daddy's. Served in Daddy's and Rialto. Also, Tom Crean's beer is a nice lager. Um, it is made in a microbrewery near the Connor Pass. Did he, does he make it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. It is imbued with the ghost of Tom Crean um, and spring water. Gorgeous. Um, the first transatlantic telegraph was sent from Valencia um, to Hearts Content. Isn't that a lovely name? Hearts Content. I'm going to take that. Uh, in Newfoundland, which is in... New- they have the same accent as us. Newfoundland as, people. Uh, as Dublin people, yeah. Isn't that mad? Because of all the emigration. And they have no, du- it's not the emigration. Because our, we were touching and then we separated. Wow. Yeah. Mad. And massive dogs. Isn't Newfoundland a big dog? Cool. Um, it is the home of Other Voices, one of the best festivals I've ever been to because I've only been for my first time, but it was so stunning. Fungi the Dolphin. Now, there's a lot of speculation of whether Fungi is the same one, but apparently he's been there since 1983. We're not going to speculate today. We're just going to let it be. Fungi is from Kerry and he's famous. And also very famous, the Hillgrove Club, which is gone. Is it gone now? I think it was the Annie Mac gig at Other Voices this year was the last uh, foray. Into We're going to have Hillgrove. to fact check that because we want the Hillgrove to survive. Isn't it the best place ever? It's fantastic. It's what a club should be. Mm. Like, I think we need more. We'll get into this later. Don't worry. Built for purpose club places. Yeah. Uh, Peg, greatest rider of them all. Greatest rider of them all. Um, unique. Uh, image autobiographer and style my um, girlfriend's mum met Peg when she was uh, sick in hospital in Kerry isn't that amazing imagine meeting Peg there you go all I know is the picture of her in her shawl 
maybe I should read more. Yeah. I'm going to read more. Yeah. Uh, Carry Home of the Rose of Tralee. If that's a good or bad thing, that's up to you to decide because we are not casting any aspersions. It's also home to the Puck Fair, which is 400 years old, which is this festival for anyone who's not listening, not in Ireland, about a goat <laughs> that is put in the middle of the town and then a girl, young maiden comes up and kisses the goat and then it's hoisted up onto a big stand and 80,000 visitors come to see this. Now there's a bit of problem that people say it's unfair on the goat but he's getting a mooch and he's got the best view in town so (laughs) that's up to you to decide listeners. Um, Another EST the oldest hotel in Ireland and it's called Ye Old Glen Bay Hotel I'm going to go out there um, James Bond's boss M was inspired by a man named William Melville who was alive from 1850 to 1918 and he was from Sneem in County Kerry and he moved over to England to be a big spy head and then nobody knew what his movements were except for James Bond writer because he was also a spy. Hmm. Was it? What? Oh. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. There's some plot holes here. No, I swear. Okay, cool. Go. Uh, and then finally, this is another EST, and this is kind of maybe the biggest, best one. The world's oldest footprints are found in Kerry. Isn't that bananas? More than 385 million years ago. 385 million years ago. A lar- and how, mu- how much have we wrecked, wrecked the country in, like, in, with climate change in the last 50 years? I know, it's devastating. 385 million years those footprints have survived. Um, the, a large amphibian animal walked on soft sediment on the shoreline of Valencia. It's all going on in Valencia. Uh, Valencia Island in Kent Kerry. And they're preserved in the rock as shallow impressions. And this cute large amphibian was known as a tetrapod. Ross from Friends would be all over this. And the footprints are the oldest known fossilised footprints in the whole entire world. They're also the earliest record of vertebrates moving onto land, breathing air, walking on all four limbs and are also the first fossil record of an amphibian animal. That is amazing. Isn't it? Yeah. Now, let's go wreck the country with some climate change. To tell us more about Kerry, uh, the kingdom of Kerry, is our county rep this week, Molly King. Um, Andrea mentioned earlier Other Voices, which we're big fans of here. And Molly King works for the Other Voices crew, um, the organisation. She uh, spent most of her life um, in West Kerry on uh, around Ventry on Dingle and uh, she's going to tell us a little bit that even though she has moved away like many Irish people living in London what Kerry means to her What I love about Kerry I love West Kerry I love the fact that Fungi is possibly the longest living bottlenose dolphin in history And no, to all the conspiracy theorists, he's not a robot dolphin or a replacement dolphin. He's the OG fungi. I love Missy and Penelope, the two lesbian penguins in Ocean World. I love West Kerry music. I love the polkas and slides. I love the wildness of them and the joy of them. I love how unselfish they are in the fact that they were always meant for dancers. I love that we spend most of our time in primary school on nature walks or learning the old folklore stories of Nafina. I love the story about the King of the World, Rion Down, coming to fight Fionn McCool on Ventry Beach. I love Mihola Merhertig and how he's a national treasure. 
I love how a video of him making ham sandwiches has millions of views. I love re-watching Darrow Canada's All-Ireland winning speech from 2003, given entirely in Irish, Oscailin. And I love how, ever since, it has informed every Kerry football speech. I love Kerry Airport, aka the best airport on the planet. I love that you can buy, buy Aunaskal sausages and Dingle Gin in the shop and hop on the plane and do it all in under 10 minutes. I love that my dad knows everyone who works there by name. I love that it allows me to live in London and get home in an hour. I love taxis home on New Year's Eve when there's like 27 people shoved into an eight-seater van there's, and there's people in the boot. But no matter how many people in the van, you always get home safe. And no matter where you're going, it's always five euro. I love that the taxi driver remembers where you live when you say, the king's from Ventry, even when you live up a Boherine in the middle of actual nowhere. I love that one of my earliest memories of Kerry is walking down to the beach on a really hot summer's day and seeing a car driving slowly through the parish with a speaker haphazardly affixed to the roof, blaring, don't forget, Jackie Healy Ray. And for better or for worse, I never ever did. I love when someone says a greeting at home that goes along the lines of meaning how is your courage I love West Kerry Irish I love the way so many people end their sentences with hi I love that people say gallus for bad and that I've never heard that word anywhere else I love and say hello yes on Radio Nagueltakta I love the tiny Balnahoun radio centre in the middle of nowhere I love the south wind blows I love that when my history teacher used Croke Park references to illustrate statistics all the way through Living Cert history, he'd say things like, now lads, that's about three and a half Croke Parks, when everyone would know exactly what he meant. I love springtime and I love the lambs and I love how my dad always stopped to wave at them on the way home from school. I love driving out to Clutter Beach during the storms to watch the utter wildness and the force of the wind and the sea. I love that on the Rand's day, Law and Drolene, if you arrived into Dingle knowing nothing about it, you'd think you'd have actually stumbled onto a place of utter pagan insanity. I love the Rand band rivalries, the Green and Gold, Shrawdown, the Key Rand, the Ghostry Rand. I love Slayhead and I love the Three Sisters. I love driving Slayhead every single time that I'm home and I love that after 23 years I have never ever gotten sick of it. I love that artists like Amy Winehouse made their way to Dingle to play in a church for 80 people. I love that in English we say the sleeping giant, but in Irish we say on farm Arif, and I've never known why, but I love that they're different. I love Sean O'Reardon and his ode to West Kerry. I've never loved returning anywhere as much as I love returning to Kerry. As Sean O'Reardon wrote, Fillery share the quid, return again to your own. Nothing has ever felt truer to me than that. So this week's question, um, Kerry, the UN Magdalene Laundry Survivors, will a UN investigation change how Ireland treats survivors of institutional abuse? This relates to um, the UN Committee Against Torture has begun to investigate the case of a Kerry woman, Elizabeth Coppin, in a move that could have implications for how the state approaches historical abuse. Now, Coppin, who's from uh, Listowel in Kerry, but living in England, was born in a Killarney mother and baby home to um, a woman who was unmarried at the time and who was 19. This was in um, 1949. Two years later, she was sent to an industrial school in Tralee. 
And when she was 14, she then spent four years in Magdalene Laundries in Cork and Waterford. Now, she alleges that in institutions she was subjected to, amongst other things, beatings, forced labour without pay, humiliation, starvation, human trafficking and other denigration. Now, you've heard Maeve work on this podcast before um, on our Galway episode when we were discussing deaths in direct provision. She is a lecturer in human rights at the Irish Centre for Human Rights in NUI Galway, a member of Justice for Magdalene's Research, the CLAN Project. Uh, she's a graduate of Harvard Law School and she's also a leading lawyer on this case, um, which is being brought to the UN Committee on Torture. First of all, tell us about this case broadly, how you came to be involved in it and what it is about and what it represents. Okay, so um, I met Elizabeth Coppin a number of years ago as a result of the work that I had been doing since 2010 with Justice for Magdalene's, um, which is now Justice for Magdalene's research. We had been campaigning um, from 2009 uh, for an apology for reparation for women who spent time in Magdalene laundries. Of course, Justice for Magdalene arose out of a former group, the Magdalene Memorial Committee, um, which had been set up when Mary Raftery's investigation in 2003 found that um, a large number of women had been exhumed and cremated from the graveyard in High Park back in 1993 without the nuns actually being able to identify many of them. Um, so Justice for Magdalene's as a campaign had a long history running back um, even further before 2009. But um, I was involved in a lot of work with Justice for Magdalene's including using international and Irish human rights bodies to try and expose the human rights violations that had happened in the Magdalene Laundries and to draw attention to the government's ongoing obligations, you know, now in the present to investigate, to ensure accountability and to ensure redress. Um, so that's how I got to know Elizabeth Coppin, although her individual case that we are now talking about and that the UN Committee Against Torture has now issued an admissibility decision in, that was something that I brought along with a number of other lawyers um, late in 2018. And so what the UN has basically, or the UN Committee has basically said is that they are kind of giving permission or allowing for this to be heard and investigated, right? That's exactly it. So in any international human rights um, case, whether it's before the European Court of Human Rights or one of the independent bodies of experts that oversees the UN human rights treaties, you always have to get past this initial stage of um, having your case found to be admissible. And one of the reasons it might not be admissible is that you haven't actually exhausted all of your domestic remedies. You haven't done everything you could in your own country before going to an international complaints body. And another reason that it might not be admissible and a big um, argument that the Irish government made in this case, although it wasn't successful, is the argument that this treaty um, didn't apply to us at the time that the abuse happened and therefore you can't judge us against it now. Um, so this decision now by the UN Committee Against Torture to admit the case and now to decide on its actual merits is really significant um, because it says about what is current or commonly called historical abuse, actually there are ongoing violations of the Convention Against Torture uh, possibly here. So 
Ireland ratified the UN Convention Against Torture in 2002. And what the committee has said is that on that date, Ireland became bound by a whole range of procedural obligations in relation to allegations of torture and ill treatment. It has been obliged since 2002 to investigate, to ensure access to complaints mechanisms, to ensure redress in relation to um, torture and ill treatment where there are reasonable grounds to believe that that has happened. And just because Elizabeth Coppin is complaining of torture and ill treatment that happened in the 1960s does not mean that she doesn't have those same procedural rights that everybody else has since 2002. So it's really significant. It kind of makes the point that, you know, just because something happened many decades ago doesn't mean it's gone away. And older survivors of torture and ill treatment still have rights today, the same as everyone else, to have their complaints investigated and dealt with properly. Can you tell us uh, the details maybe of Elizabeth's case and what she's alleging? Yeah, so Elizabeth Coppin has a really tragic um, childhood history and she is just absolutely amazing in her resilience and how she has um, managed to lead um, such a powerful life personally and now publicly. Um, But she was born in 1949. Um, Her mum was unmarried and she was born in a county home and her grandfather had to pay £100 to get her mum and herself out of the county home. Unfortunately, at the age of two, she was put by a court into an industrial school on account of child abuse. And she spent her entire childhood up until the age of 14 in an industrial school where the torture that she experienced really um, is unspeakable. Um, At a certain point, uh, she was no longer allowed to go to school. She spent most of her time um, doing menial labour. She says that generally on the weekends when she came home from school on a Friday, this is before she was um, barred from going to school altogether, she would be put to bed and not actually allowed to um, eat or come out of the dormitories until the Monday morning when she was sent back to school. At a certain point in time, she just became a house um made essentially to the nuns in the industrial school and the physical abuse that she suffered and the general emotional abuse and torment was so bad that she um, set herself on fire. She tried to um, end her life by setting herself on fire as a young child because it was so bad. Um, When she was 14, the nuns in the industrial school transferred her to her first Magdalene laundry. essentially as a punishment, it would seem for, you know, complaining about all of the abuse that she was suffering in the industrial school. And this Magdalene Laundry in Peacock Lane in Cork um, was somewhere that she was forced to sleep every night in a cell, bolted from the outside. She, as a young girl, became part of the regime that we all know about in the Magdalene Laundries, where she um, was forced into unpaid labour constantly at heavy, hard commercial laundry was humiliated, denigrated, denied adequate food, warmth, 
any form of kindness. Um, she says that she realised after she was put in solitary confinement um, for a period of days that she actually, the nuns did not mean to let her out and she was going to have to escape herself. And so she managed to escape, but she was caught and returned to the Magdalene Laundries by the ISPCC. She was then transferred to another two Magdalene Laundries and she was finally allowed to go by some kinder nuns in the third Magdalene Laundry just before her 19th birthday. Wow. Um, God, I don't even know how to digest that information. Um, what what does it mean for this case to come um, before this committee? What can happen in their investigation and what are the next steps? So a huge element of this case when it's decided and of Elizabeth's complaints um, already is to do with accountability, um, which is something that several UN human rights treaty bodies over the last decade have noted is basically absent in Ireland's responses to so-called historical abuses. Um, Elizabeth Coppin actually went to the police in 1997. In 1998, made really long, detailed statements about all of the abuses she had suffered. She tried to take a case then also in 1999 to the High Court um, against the nuns and she tried to add the state to that case but she was kicked out because of her so-called delay. She has complained to the industrial schools, redress board, commission to inquire into child abuse. She went to the Magdalene scheme. She has given a statement to the Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation and despite all of her efforts, she complains and I believe she's right to complain that the Irish state has never actually addressed um, her human rights violations in the Magdalene Laundries. So there has not actually been an investigation into the allegations of massive and systematic human rights violations in Magdalene Laundries. The MacLeese inquiry that happened between 2011 and 2013, which led to the apology by Enda Kenny, it was an inquiry by the state, by senior civil servants in a range of government departments, an inquiry into the extent of state involvement with the Magdalene Laundries. And they found involvement across the board, but it wasn't, it had no terms of reference to investigate whether abuse happened, who was responsible, how it happened, and least of all, whether that abuse amounted to constitutional rights violations and other European and international human rights violations and how we could ensure that that kind of thing never happens again. Um, there's obviously never been police investigations, any kind of systematic police investigation that we know of into the Magdalene Laundries. The women have been prevented from getting to the courts. As we know, Elizabeth Coppin was prevented from getting to the courts. Um, because of rules around delay. Obviously, also lack of access to evidence has made it very difficult for people to get to court. And now, since the Magdalene scheme was brought in in 2013, which gives the women limited payments, they actually have to sign legal waivers of their rights against the state, saying that they will never sue the state in relation to the Magdalene laundries in exchange for these small payments, which actually are explicitly stated to be ex gratia, meaning given as a gift not in recognition for any wrongdoing. So on the one hand, they're giving you a gift that they say isn't in recognition of wrongdoing. And on the other hand, they're saying, but now you can't sue us, which cumulatively means that it doesn't then go into the history books that abuse happened because no one's able to then get to court to force the production of evidence to bring about a judicial pronouncement that 
legal rights violations happened. And the entire archive belonging to the McAleese Committee, which gathered every single state document relating to the Magdalene Laundries, that whole archive is now being held secret by the Department of the Taoiseach. That department is refusing to answer freedom of information uh, requests for any of the documents out of that archive, saying that it's holding the archive not for the purposes of the FOI Act, but for safekeeping. Maven, I've heard you talk a lot about this over the last few years with particular um, attention that I think is very interesting around uh, the the so-called inquiries or like redress boards or things like that. And I think that there is something of a misconception um, in society that these things were dealt with, that people were heard and they maybe got compensation, quote unquote, or things like that. Yeah. But it seems to me that the way you've been explaining this stuff over the last few years in your work, that those types of mechanisms um, act as kind of a superficial or false resolution and, and simultaneously become this kind of blockade to any real justice. Yeah, and they kind of also allow this narrative that these people, these people, I mean, genuinely it is appalling, but often survivors are described, you know, these people want money and they just want more money. And that is absolutely not the primary thing that concerns the survivors that I've met. Although, of course, financial payments are really important to help people put a roof over their head, put a roof over their family's head, perhaps send their children or grandchildren to further education. Like having experienced this kind of abuse uh, has a massive correlation with poverty later in life due to the trauma and due, of course, to the lack of educational opportunity and therefore job opportunity um, or career progression. But uh, yeah, like it, this narrative has been created by virtue of the fact that the only thing available to survivors has been limited payments, that that's all that they have ever wanted and that that is all we have ever been able to give or required to give. And it completely has, um, I suppose, eclipsed the very fact that um, there has been no proper truth-telling or reforms, structural reforms, or national education, or even access to records that would enable people to put the truth of their life and their family history back together. Now, access to records is kind of varying in its degrees, depending on which type of institution um, survivors were in. And of course, many people were in a whole range of institutions Uh, It would seem that access to records from industrial schools, personal files is generally um, better than access to records from, for example, adoption agencies. Um, But it's really hard to know. It's really hard to know what people are and are not um, able to access. And then, of course, a whole different range of institutions, whether state or non-state, hold people's records. Um, What we do know is that all the inquiries that have been set up don't tend to give people access to the evidence and the records that they're gathering. So, for example, at the moment, the Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation, it is not giving access to the personal data that it is gathering on people or on their deceased relatives. So you have people. Yeah. Can I ask a seemingly silly question, but why is that? Well, I think it's because 
the people who set up the Commissions of Investigation Act 2004 and the people running the Mother and Baby Homes Commission do not understand it to be something that is concerned with human rights or constitutional rights. There is no mention, um, apart from a really sparse uh, in one line mention of human rights in the terms of reference of the Mother and Baby Homes Commission of Investigation. So I think it's seen as like an opportunity to tell to tell the facts of what happened um, rather than to make any judgments about constitutional rights violations that those facts uh, give rise to. And it, there's kind of, there are a lot of historians involved and it really is problematic because it's an attempt by the state to tell the one and only history instead of using those investigations as a process of opening up information to then that can then be analysed for decades to come by whoever wants to analyse it, whether it's by people themselves to know more about their own history or their family history, whether it's by historians or sociologists or political theorists or um, theologians to understand more about their discipline or whether it's the guards to see if they need to bring um, investigations or the DPP needs to bring a prosecution or whether it's for survivors to use in the courts. So my view of what should happen is that any investigation, and I do think we need a future kind of capstone approach that is not confined to limited numbers of institutions, but tries to bring the accountability that's been so lacking. I think that approach needs to be to have a process of opening up information, of having public hearings where people want to give public testimony, um, of providing personal access to files and of creating a national state archive of information that the public is able to see. And I should say, my last point, um, is that it's really important to say no one is asking for survivors to be forced to reveal their own personal testimonies or their personal files. I think that's unfortunately something that the government has been suggesting people like me are calling for. I've had some people ask me why I'm calling for this and I've never, ever called for it. Survivors should not be forced to produce their own life history to anybody else. The point is that they need to be able to access their own files and there should be public access where survivors want to give their testimony in public um, or where there's administrative files or files that can be appropriately redacted so that we can all use this information for our own education. If Elizabeth is taking this case now, does that this mean that other people will be able to take similar cases? Yeah, actually, this is a really good point. They could. Um, what was really significant in this admissibility decision was the issue of the waiver. The Irish government basically said, hold on, Elizabeth has received money from the Industrial Schools Redress Board and the Magdalene Scheme. Um, and she has signed her legal rights away against the state. She's not supposed to be taking any cases against us. And the UN Committee Against Torture reiterated its statement, which it has made before, which is um, an established part of international human rights law that states when there has been massive or systematic um, grave and systematic human rights violations, they can and they should establish administrative reparations or financial payment schemes. But those schemes can never operate to deprive people of their individual rights to complain, to um, 
seek an investigation, basically their rights to accountability. So money is one thing and it's really necessary. And often it's the first thing that's necessary so that people have the ability to then even look around and start to address their other needs. Um, and providing people who are victims of torture or cruel and human or degrading treatment with money can never be a means of stopping them then seeking accountability. So this admissibility decision definitely opens the door to other people who have been forced to sign away their rights against the state and um, bringing cases around issues that they feel are still unaddressed. May finally, um, when is this case being heard or when does the investigation officially start? Like, what's the timeline we're looking at here? The government has been given four months um, from the date of the decision, which was in late December, I believe, um, to reply on the merits of the case. Because, of course, they have given a long written defence, but their first defence was only on the issue of of admissibility. So now they have a chance um, to send in another defence, which is on the actual merits, that is, in response to Elizabeth's um, substantive claims that there's been no effective investigation, that she has not had access to appropriate complaints mechanisms, that she hasn't received full redress, and also that she's now continuing to suffer um, degrading treatment by virtue of the state's position, which is that there is no credible evidence of systematic ill treatment of a criminal nature happening in the Magdalene Laundries and it doesn't have to investigate. Um, so the government will send in its reply to the UN, then Elizabeth will see that and we and her legal team will have the opportunity to make a further reply and then there'll be a full written judgment. And you might remember um, there were two judgments on abortion actually uh, um, in the years before we had uh, the referendum yeah. um, from the Human Rights Committee. So they are, they read like proper um, coerced judgments. They are very detailed assessments of the law. Okay, cool. Well, listen, Maeve, um, that's fascinating. It's tragic. It is um, could be quite historical and impactful. And we're going to check back in with you as this progresses. Um, and, and best of luck with it. You're, you're doing amazing work. So fair play. Thanks so much, guys. It's really nice to talk to you. So um, Keelan Hogan is the author of Republic of Shame, which is a book that I recommend to somebody, I'm going to say every seven to 11 minutes of my life. (laughs) Um, It's an amazing piece of journalism um, and reportage uh, that uh, somehow manages to contain the horror and the history and the contemporary relationship with that history in one place um, which is a very difficult thing to do because we know that that this um, as what as what Kaylin calls the shame industrial complex is so uh, nebulous but solid at the same time it's such a weird history that we have and it's difficult to find um, access points to that but this is what she does in this book if you haven't read it I know loads of our listeners have if you haven't go and buy it uh, in an independent bookstore please Mm -hmm. Um, and if you have read it uh, buy it again and give it to somebody uh, who you think um, would benefit from it or go to your library and get it Um, so we wanted to talk to Killian about uh, this case more broadly um, and and what it means uh, to the landscape of this culture that we are still reckoning with so uh, we're delighted that she's in studio to have a chat thanks for having me Um, 
When you heard about this case that was progressing, what were you thinking in relation to how that responds to your own investigations of this uh, thing? I think it's very important to acknowledge that this is not an historic issue, that this is something that is current and ongoing and affecting the lives of many women in this country who still don't have access to records, still don't have answers, and really want justice for what happened to them, the forced unpaid labor that they experienced in the laundries, and that that trauma that stays with them from their experiences of institutionalization. And I think it speaks to a feeling of of lack of justice or lack of truth-telling at the moment, despite the investigations that have happened um, and are ongoing. Uh, You know, the UN has acknowledged that more needs to be done, that an independent investigation has not really been achieved yet into what happened in the laundries, even though we had the McAleese report. So many women still looking for answers, and I think that's who I thought of um, when this was announced. Um, I know so many women who are still struggling to access information and feel like their voices haven't been heard. It's really interesting that thing about like the the, what what is consigned to the past and what exists in the present you know it's something that that a discussion around the general election is bubbling up too like people mm-hmm. saying the IRAs in the past and and other people are saying well actually our pain is very contemporary you know and our suffering mm-hmm. uh, still exists um when you know just in 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 reading Republic of Shame the thing that really stuck out to me obviously was like personal testimonies and personal experiences um do you think that that can be somehow addressed by the state? Well, the way it's been approached so far has been through these commissions of investigation that sort of take, you know, a number of years to complete, are, are quite secretive. Um, you know, there's no sort of public access to the testimonies. And, you know, even though many of the women actually asked to give their testimony in public so that it would be recorded, so that people would be able to hear what they say. So there hasn't been a sort of truth-telling process. And I think that's what many people people have been calling for. It also has been a very siloed approach. So we had the investigation into the industrial schools. We had the McAleese report into the laundries. We are now still awaiting the investigation into the mother and baby home institutions. And so we tend to view them as separate. Um, But I think this case really shows that it was a network, a very closely interconnected network of institutions. Um, Elizabeth Coppin went through the county home. She went through industrial schools, she went through three Magdalene laundries. And that that compares to many of the, the, the experiences that women have spoken to me about, um, being born in these institutions, growing up through them, some never leaving. Um, so one woman in Cork that I know was born in Dublin in an institution, made to work there and then sent off to a Magdalene laundry in Cork. And she still lives on the grounds of that laundry. So there are women today who are still living um, on the grounds of the institutions where they were forced to work and who've never had lives, who've never sort of been allowed to access information to, um, in some cases, meet or reconnect with their families. In this woman's case, it was only because she became very ill, the nuns finally reached out to a relative or tried to find a relative. And she told me before that she never even knew she had a family. Uh, So this is still affecting many people's lives today. Do you think it's something that we're finally ready for? Um, 
confronting because obviously we've had different almost patchwork analyses of it from Mary Raftery's work and so on to now and then it would kind of bubble up and particularly around stuff like the McAleese report because I suppose what strikes me with your own work is that you're a young woman you know you you have a perspective that is not necessarily subdued by the theocracy that orbits this kind of thing so do you think we're ready to really actually address this? I think so I think we've gone through a number of years of sort of silences being broken and uh, you know like Mary Raftery's work States of Fear Dear Daughter documentaries and and reports that really broke the silences around the abuse in the institutions I think in the last few years with the repeal referendum even with marriage equality when the question of who gets to be a family was raised again that very painful discussion was sort of brought back to the surface and and I think we saw the reaction to that we said this is not happening again you know my family is my family and no one gets to dictate who gets to be a parent or you know what family is the correct family Uh, so I think during repeal as well the institutional legacy in this country um, was a catalyst to change I think many people reference the treatment of women in the institutions the treatment of mothers in the institutions um, and the sort of control that was imposed on women and that was sort of referenced and, and fuel change, I think, in many ways. And the voices of women who'd experienced the, these institutions were heard and were important during that time. You've done um, multiple interviews with women who've been um, in various institutions from laundries, mother and baby homes, or what is called county homes, all of those kind of things. For you, um, with a perspective that a lot of people don't have, what do you think are common emotional threads or um, common ground of people's emotional interiors years later, the legacy of, of this emotionally? I think I one of the women we had, there was an event last year, or I think it might have been the year before, actually, the time is running, but uh, Dublin Honours Magdalens, where yeah, house, yeah. more than 200 women, I'm sure may have talked about this, but more than 200 women who had been in the Magdalen laundries um, were honoured in this city. And it, it was remarkable to see, you know, the, the resilience and the lives that women had gone on to live when, when they did, when they were able to leave the institutions. And one woman in particular, you might have seen her in the photos, was this amazing red jumpsuit, very glamorous and, uh, you know, outspoken woman. And she spoke about how she was told she was born in a mother and baby home, grew up in, in industrial schools and was then sent to the laundry, that same pattern. And she was told when she was in the institutions that, you know, nobody wants you. That's why you're here. Uh, no one wants you. No one loves you. Um, you're here because, you know, no one in society cares about you. And so I think it's been really important in the last few years um, to that these women are finding spaces to speak and they're actually being listened to and heard. Um, and that event was a very important part of that. But I think more of that needs to happen because there are many women who are still silent about what they experienced particularly women who are sent to the mother and baby home institutions and are still holding on to those secrets, have still never told anyone that they know and still feel shame um, and a shame that was imposed on them. And I think we've spoken about this before, about that sense of shame and what it does to someone, um, how it becomes internalized as something they have done rather than a shame that was imposed on them. Um, and, and that's still affecting many people. And it is 
you see how it affects people. Um, and across the board, you know, I think that was something that was a shared emotion among um, whether it was women who had been sent to the laundries, whether it was children who were adopted from the institutions. Uh, that sense of shame and stigma, uh, it stays with people. So again, the idea that these are historical investigations, it is something that affects lives for a very long time. For people who haven't um, read your book, like what was your impetus for delving into this subject? I think it was that those years of change that we've gone through and I started reporting it in 2017 when the results of the test excavation at Tume were released and um, you know after all the the incredible work that Catherine Corliss did to um, show the number of children who had died in this institution and the fact there were no burial records the, the test excavation showed that there were significant human remains on the site um, of the institution dating back to the time the Bon Secours operated the so-called home. Uh, so it was a time where these, this information was coming to light and um, I just began speaking with people because I think, you know, I grew up with an idea of the Magdalene Laundries. It was something you kind of knew about. You'd watch the film, you know, I think for many people that was their first introduction to this this legacy. Um, but I'd never actually spoken with anyone who had first-hand experience. And as soon as I did, I realised how many people were affected and how close to home it was. I had friends whose aunts had been institutionalized um, or you know whose mothers have been born in these institutions so it I think we all probably know someone whose lives have been affected in some way and that was something I didn't really realize it felt distanced before I started working on this book yeah because there's a moment where you write about how you know when people find people friends acquaintances like find out that's what you're writing about pretty soon like everybody is saying oh mm. well this my cousin or my auntie or my granny or whatever and this outpouring of um, personal stories and there's a weird almost like Russian kind of known unknown kind of way that, that Irish people deal with this in that we see this inst- culture of institutionalization. we know that it is widespread we also know that everybody that we know probably could name a story personal to their family or a cl- family very close to them or a neighbour or whatever Yet simultaneously, we hold this kind of cognitive dissonance bit about, but it was still marginal. Mm-hmm. So when are we going to admit to ourselves that it was not marginal? This was actually in the fabric of our society, extraordinarily widespread. Or what do it, the numbers add up to that? Yeah, I mean, I think what's slowly coming out from the investigation that has been now f- nearly five years in the, in the making, that we will hopefully have the results from later this year, you know, that it showed that there was a significant higher number of survivors that they expected. So I think the report that was released recently showed over 50,000 people, women and children who had been affected by these institutions are still alive today in Ireland and abroad because, of course, forced adoptions um, and thousands of children were sent to the US. So I think 
there is a surprise on, on how many lives this is actually still affecting and that's something we have to come to terms with. But I think it was interesting because when I was reporting the book, I had, you know, Google alert for Magdalene Laundries and Mother and Baby Homes. And it would come up almost every day, especially around repeal in the news, something about some reference to that legacy. And yet, I think we reference it all the time and we're aware of it now, but we don't realize that it's it's an urgently ongoing issue. So the fact that the adoption legislation is, you know, still um, not passed and it, people who are adopted from these institutions still don't have the right to their own birth information, uh, to their own identity. So in the book, I talk about a woman my own age, um, born in 1988, who has only begun to search for her mother. And um, so this is, there's a whole new generation who are only beginning the process of tracing and trying to find information. And there's legislation being passed in our names today that is still denying them the right to that information. And it's not, you know, in the UK, in the North, it's been normal for years for people when they turn 18 to have the right to that those records, to have the right to their original birth cert. And um, so we are unusual in that in that regard and there is a perpetuation of that culture of silence and shame that is still affecting young people today. Do you think the perpetuation of that, particularly with related to legislation around adoption, because I know it's a very painful, um, you know, contemporary landscape for a lot of people. Um, do you think that that, like perpetuating that is vindictive or conspiratorial or do you think it's just unthinking, people just not even out of laziness, stupidity, aloofness, whatever, not thinking about it, or is it more targeted? I think it depends on who we're talking about, because I think when it comes to the state, I think there is a concerted effort to control information. Um, we've seen with with Tusla, for instance, a lot of the, you know, most of the records from the institutions have been handed over to the family and child um, agency that's run by the state. And, you know, survivors have said that actually the redaction of those records when they're released by Tusla is more, you know, sort of more secretive and, and the redaction is more intense than when the nuns held the records and, and were giving them out. You know, sometimes you'd be lucky and you'd have someone who was nice and, and would give you more information. But with Tusla, I think there is a, you know, a real... Um, concern about about privacy and they're using GDPR legislation now in an effort to um, it seems to control information so claiming that any information relating to a third party cannot be released so I've talked to people who get their records back but they're all blanked out and even the names of their adoptive parents so the people who are legally their family are blanked out or their siblings who they've grown up with their whole life are, are blanked out so that's a very that does not encourage trust you know in the state um, and in the process of accessing information when it comes to families I think it's it's um, it's mixed I think there definitely are families who who are holding on to those secrets and you know there are instances where people will reach out to family after they have traced and there's still a sense of you know we don't want to engage with that and we don't want to talk about that so i think that's something as a society that we do still have to acknowledge um that we need to to speak about that maybe create a space where people realize the importance of of sort of not 
pushing this away and and talking about it more. Mm. And what about the nuns? What are their attitudes and have you found in general, really? So it was really important to me in this book to try and speak to nuns. And I I did um, speak to quite a few of the religious sisters, some who worked in Magdalene laundries when they were novices and did say they, you know, one of the nuns said it, it was wrong. Uh, the way we called women penitents and the way we called them offenders, it was wrong. And the way they were treated within the laundries was wrong. Um, There still is a secrecy, though, I think, on the part of the religious orders. There's a hierarchy. So some of the women who I reached out to really wanted to talk to me, but there was a sense that they needed permission in some ways. Uh, I spoke to a a nun who was a midwife in the biggest mother and baby home in Ireland. And she, her memory was perfect. She remembered women coming in with sort of two corsets over their stomach to hide their their pregnancy or uh, bringing in maps from Norway to pretend that they were off on a trip to, you know, trip abroad um, and sort of writing letters home. But, you know, on the part of, let's say, the Sisters of Sacred Hearts who ran Bespra in Cork, which was open until 1998, so incredibly recently, uh, they they sort of said they would talk and then lawyers, I think, got involved and there was a sort of a, a silence then um, and they wouldn't engage. And there are religious sisters with that order who are still alive today who worked there for decades. Um, and with Bespra, there are more than 800 children who died there and we don't know where they're buried. Does it almost feel like the nuns feel like they were providing a service though because if the families are sending the women in it's almost like who's like not to say who's at fault but if families are being sending their children in. That's something I I got asked like all the time and Mm. people would say to me it was the families and I don't think anyone denies that families sent their daughters in some cases but it wasn't across the board so in the cases of many women I spoke about and that I write about their families never knew. They were, you know, one 17 year old went to a social worker or their doctor and they were sort of, there was a whole network that would usher them into these institutions and they kept it completely secret from their families. That woman in particular uh, only told her mother when they were watching, I think, the Magdalene sisters and she turned to her and say, said, I was in one of those institutions. And her mother said, we never would have sent you away, you know, we would have we would have looked after you. And she actually did leave um, the second time with her child and the family embraced her and, and, and you know, w- were very understanding. So this idea that every family, you know, sent their daughter away and forced them away and, and the religious sisters were providing a refuge, I think that's a narrative that is... Is so is not borne out in the experience than the individual families. It was the overarching a lot feeling. Of, a lot of people said it was neighbors' fear of what the neighbors would say. But then I guess neighbors and families didn't exist in a vacuum. You know, the authority of the church at the time, the influence of the church at the time. I don't think my generation or our generation can really understand how powerful it was. Um, they were an authority and the idea that someone would find out that you were pregnant out of wedlock, it could affect your job, it could affect your parents' job, your standing. And that was all linked back to the fact that the church was saying that this was a sin. And so the idea of these places as refuges, well, you don't call people you send to refuges penitents and offenders. So I think it's it's a narrative that has been used to sort of explain away um, why we sent 
thousands of women to these institutions. But when you look at the reality, when you look at how they were forced to work, their names were taken away, they weren't allowed to speak to each other. Uh, this was not a supportive environment to sort of give them a secure space and help them you know, live their lives or, and keep their children. They were told they were worthless. They were told they couldn't be mothers um, and that the only caring thing they could do would be to give their child to a good married couple. I think that some of the religious sisters maybe thought themselves that they were doing what was right, but also in a very moralistic way that it was about saving souls. It was about redeeming women. And you see that in in the records. Um, you see the word penitent used to describe women one woman who was sent to Magdalen Laundry after being entombed twice, having two children taken away from her, uh, we got her records from the Mercy Sisters, who operated a number of laundries in this country. And you know they wouldn't talk to me when I was as asking to access records for research, but they they do give some of records to individuals when they apply. And her records, she got one line from a ledger back that said she was sent to the Magdalen Laundry because she was twice penitent, so because she had two children. So I think all of that explains how women were viewed within these institutions and how they were treated. I think as well, um, the the even the aesthetic of, pla of places and the design within them and how it reinforced that kind of stuff. Um, I recently got access to the ex Magdalene Laundry on Sean McDermott Street, um, which I'm sure I'm not meant to talk about, but inside there, um, which is huge, and the chapel that is there, the stained glass, the statues, the iconography is all related to very specific aspects of Catholic teaching. So a lot of Mary Magdalene stuff, a lot of stuff around um, mothering and it is astonishing to imagine you know existing in this in this institution and being confronted all the time with this stuff that has been bespoke made for to reflect your own uh, quote unquote sins and shortcomings back at you I thought it was you know really astonishing like even the the, the level of detail you know, not just in how people are spoken it was to. So thought about yeah, what the yeah. image was going to be. Yeah, um, really, really um, disturbing. But I want to ask um, before you go, Keelan, just one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is the naming of these places. And what do you think of the word home constantly being used? It's not how we describe hospitals or, you know, um, psychiatric institutions and things like that. I've always thought it was very insidious or something. It's something that really hurts a lot of survivors who have been sent to the institutions. That word home is something that actually some of the mothers um, are trying to have changed, that we don't refer to it as, as a home. Uh, so when I do speak about it, I try and say, you know, the mother may be home institutions because they were institutions. They were never homes. I think that th that is how they were described at the time. Uh, the Tume home was, was literally known as the home. Um, 
And but for me, it it, it kind of highlights how how far from a home these institutions were, and I don't think anyone really considered them homes because it's interesting. A lot of people I spoke to who w- were never inside the institutions but would have heard about them as kids growing up, the only way they were aware of them is if their parents said, you know, you'll end up in the home if you're bold, you know, behave yourself or you'll end up in there. So, they, you know, they were never seen as, as sort of safe places uh, or homes. And I think it is that the whole way that they were described and the language used again was to bolster this idea of them as as refugees and from every person i've spoken to their experience was was not of a, a secure space or a loving space it was somewhere where they felt isolated and institutionalized and it was a way to hide them away from society in the same way we we do in many ways with direct provision and emergency accommodation today it ostracizes people who are vulnerable so that we don't see them um so it is a sort of institutional uh, system that we see uh, perpetuated today Republic of Shame is out now. Everybody should read it. Can I ask one more thing? Go on, Andre. From speaking to everyone, what do you think is the course forward? Like, how do we bring about, how do we make amends? How do we help these women to, like, move forward? Like, I, I think that we have to listen to them and listen to what they say that they need. But I... I Access to records, access to information, transparency, I think, would go a long way. The idea that we're still trying to keep things secret or prevent access to information is 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 very hurtful and um, keeps people from from knowing their own identity, from being able to trace each other. You know, people are getting older, people are dying, and there are several cases of people who tried to trace their mother and their mother died in that time. So the young woman I spoke to, the waiting list is like three years, I think, for her to finally access a social worker. I think the adoption legislation needs to give people the right to their own identity and their birth cert. And the this attempt to seal records um, would be a huge mistake, I think. I think we need transparency and we need truth. And that's, in many cases, all people are asking for. Can I ask, what are you working on at the moment? Back to journalism at the moment. Uh, Yeah, reporting on the homelessness crisis, the housing crisis. I think that's something that needs to be focused on. And there's a lot going on in this country right now. So uh, direct provision and the housing crisis are two things I'm looking into. Keep up the great work. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. Andrea, what's getting in the sea? So, I was going to put the astronomic, no, astronomical amount of rain that's been falling the last few days in the sea, but then I was like, that is the most Irish thing in the world to put weather in the sea, so I didn't. <laughs> and anyway, it's going in anyway. <laughs> that's how weather works. Raindrops fall into the sea. But what is getting into the sea? So, there I was, just having a little flick around the internet, uh, and I came across on Refinery29, who is an American publishing company. They have these money diaries where oh, yeah, people yeah. talk about what they spend their money on. 
and they kind of talk about their schedule as well and I was reading them and like most of them have people setting their alarms to get up at 4.30am. Now, I am not saying that anyone who gets up early in the morning Hi Leah, miss you uh, is uh, unhinged (laughs) (laughs) because obviously that's not true but what I am saying is People who need to get up early because they are working three jobs and it's a necessity. I Like, that makes sense. If you're working a night shift, that makes sense. But if you are lucky enough to be in a job that pays you well and that you're, you are measuring your success on how busy you are, that you have to get up at half four in the morning to get so much done in your day because you're so busy, that that is really an issue with our neoliberal sit- situation that is forcing people to get up in the middle of the night to go for a run or to have their breakfast or t- and then he came back to bed with a steaming cup of coffee. It's 5am! Get a grip! Have a ride! <laughs> so for people who are getting up at 4am to try and show everyone else how s- successful you are, cop on and get in the sea. Also, like, <laughs> this, you know, it's very American because it's just like hyper-capitalist. It's like, I don't have time to cook so I subscribe to Blue Apron and I don't know how to fucking buy anything anymore so... You know, like a third of the American population is on Amazon Prime, for example. What is I just, which is just like the fat, like how the fastest delivery. Oh, okay. Um, which is why there's all these people basically working for five cents and getting injured in Amazon's warehouses. Anyway, um, the race to the bottom. I just feel like a lot of people who are, you know, judge their or base their value on their own productivity. I think it's like a lot of those people, those people are very invested in technology. You know, like they use technology an awful lot in their lives. And it's like, wasn't technology meant to take away work and make things easier? And now it's just landed you with all this other shit you have to do. I don't get up early, basically. Sometimes I I do. Sometimes I went like I don't get up at half four unless I haven't gone to bed yet. Yeah. I used I did went through a phase last year when I was for maybe a month or something when I was getting up at like six AM and then, you know, you're like, I got so much done and then it's like, but this is really boring. Um, and also But I work late. I work until about nine or ten. So I start work at like eleven I'm ten or eleven. I'm much uh, but like that's not our productivity levels are neither here nor there. And I love the quote that Michael G. Higgins uh, made and I'd love to actually get the right one but he's like you're not education is more than just learning to be useful Mm. like you're not just here to be useful you're here to be alive to be to love to to dance to dance in the rain to laugh (laughs) namaste hippie Andrea strikes back but so yeah speaking of things speaking (laughs) of live laugh love um, what are your fave bits this week oh my god I have so many (laughs) it's such a good week of fave bits firstly my ever fave bit No More Hotels was on at the weekend and it just fills me with so much energy and buzz and just hope for the future because everyone comes to it with their their best intentions to just have fun we don't take ourselves in any way serious we're not trying to be cool it's just the absolute crack and I just think you've got people from across the board like we had MMA fighter and actor Carl Pendred to Lynn Ruan Senator Lynn Ruan DJing we had um 
Fanula J from Love Island commentary. Um, and everyone just came and just really went for it. But it, it comes in the same time and we use the hashtag clubbing as culture. But the same week that there was uh, Berlin's nightclubs have launched a fight to get the same cultural status as opera houses in Berlin because they're being uh, moved out and gentrified and knocked down. And the people in the club commission are saying, do you know what? Nightclubs are as important to the culture and the makeup and the economy of Berlin as an opera house. So we should be um, rated the same. And I think that goes back to if we can figure out that clubbing is, in fact, culture, that then we can appreciate it. And if people come out and say they go clubbing and it's not like, oh, I went on the sesh and see it as a negative. It's like you're you're partaking in culture. Mm. And another thing. Also is last night I saw there was this club called Hijinks in Tramline. Last night was Monday night when we were recording listeners. I'm ve- feeling very Fraser today. <laughs> Fraser Kane. Um, but it was rammed. And so when people are and obviously that they're students. Um, so when people are saying that there's just not an appetite for young people to go out anymore, that is bullshit. There's an ap- attitude there or an appetite. People want to do it. We're just not providing it. So we need to keep pushing the clubbing is culture message. Um, and yeah, that's it. That first up. Second up is um, Assemble, which is a group exhibition, the first group exhibition in Atelier Maser. Um, and it's launching on the 12th of March. And it just so happens uh, to be an all-female lineup. And obviously we ha- there's so much issues with women in art um, and all those. Um, if you go into, an, into a gallery and you look at the representation of how much art is created by women, it's always a tiny percentage. So uh, it is very good to see that this group of whopper women making art. And also the thing I loved is all the promotion that was done. There was no mention of gender yeah, in it. Yeah, because I actually got a press release for this whenever a few days ago. And I was like, oh, right, they're doing a group exhibition. And then I looked through it and there was just like, these are really cutting edge contemporary artists. They are amazing, blah, blah, blah. And then there's just a picture of all these women. I was like, well, you know, that's how you do it. In the same week as there's all this bullshit about the Reading and Leeds lineups, which are just lads fest. Mm. Um, I thought that was very cool. So yeah. well done, Atelier Maser. Agreed. Um, then as par- that's actually launching as part of St. Patrick's Day Festival. And as part of that is Where We Live, which is a festival within a festival brought by our babes in This Is Pop Baby. So there's a heap loads of shows that they are putting on, uh, a lot of new productions. So definitely give that a look. And also the whole St. Patrick's Day Festival, which is also being rebranded as St. Patrick's Festival, um, has got a full new contemporary look and I've just had a flick through the brochure. The co- the content in it is so reflective of a modern Ireland without trying to be forgetting our traditions, etc. It just is really, uh, from the look of the brochure to what is going on over the whole festival, I just think thumbs up to St. Patrick's Festival. Um, they've really done good work in the programming and I... I, I give it my seal of approval. <laughs> <laughs> and my final thing this week, see, so much my fits. Oh, God, I love life. Uh, my last fave bit um, is a bit more serious, but today the Irish Council for Civil Liberties and Virgin Media Dublin International Film Festival launched the ICCL's Human Rights and Film Award which I've been lucky enough to be uh, on the jury for and getting to see all these amazing films because I am not as good as you at going to things unless I'm like, you have to go to this or you should go to this. So it's actually been really good to uh, go and see these films like herself. And like we can't talk about herself, but we can say that 
if the people who are saying that sure aren't we doing well as an economy saw this film and saw the suffering that somebody who uh, who is a victim of domestic abuse and then has to has no other option but to build her own house to try and provide somewhere for her and her kids to live if people saw that there is no way that they can't say well sure aren't we all doing grand um, so I think everyone should see that but also included in the lineup is Street Leagues which is about the homeless uh, leagues uh, which Colin Farrell is involved in Hearts and Bones Santiago Italia which is uh, an amazing film about the Italians uh trying to provide um, respite for in Santiago with the Chilean uh, takeover by Pinochet and then Balloon. So uh, loads of brilliant films to be seen at not just the Dublin International Film Festival, but the ICCL who are trying to highlight film being used for human rights reasons. Very good fave bits. Enjoyed those. Um, My fave bits this week, I went to the Woman's Heart concert last week in the National Concert Hall with my mum. And it was amazing. Obviously, the record highest selling Irish album of all time my heart is low. in Ireland. My heart is so low. All of that. And it was um, Eleanor Mac. Did they sing that? They did. Oh. Um, it was RT Concert Orchestra playing A Woman's Heart with Eleanor McAvoy, Wallace Bird, and Moore O'Connell, who I'm just totally obsessed with. If you know the Woman's Heart album as much as I do she sang like um, Summerfly and stuff on that but she's she's about 60, 61 she lives in Tennessee her voice is amazing when you're listening to it it's just like one of the kind of great voices you know and really great singers it's just completely effortless so that was brilliant like me like you heart is so low (laughs) amazing Um, and what else so that was great it's actually on again on Wednesday in the concert all sold out but if you can you know somehow get a ticket off hashtag ticket fairy hashtag ticket fairy um, go if you can and if you are going you'll have a ball so enjoy Um, I watched The Edge of Democracy on Netflix it's a documentary about Brazil and what happened before Bolsonaro came to power and it's told from personal perspective of this um, woman whose family had some ties to kind of previous presidents. It is an amazing documentary. Okay. I'm going to watch that. Yeah, it's not. I was kind of scared of watching it because I was like, I actually can't deal with any more terrible bad shit. Bad shit. Bolsonaro Made does, in Manhattan, may I suggest. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Bolsonaro doesn't f- feature overly in it. It's more about the context of what led to um, the kind of break breakdown of, of some democratic processes in Brazil absolutely fantastic watch it I really want to watch it. Marina Abramovich's uh, the artist is present so. yeah, yeah yeah that's great um, uh, just finished Weather this great book by Jenny Offal if you're looking for a short book that is very nice interesting form uh, it's a novel go read that um, her one before that Department of Speculation I really liked as well so yes VG Weather by Jenny Offal and I The Lighthouse film with Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe went to see it the other night it is fucking bonkers and brilliant and I just love is that, it positive? Um, no <laughs> I, I just love that you know some there's there's a lot of like there's been a lot of crap films recently there's also been a lot of good films something like this where someone's just making a film that is just unapologetically you know quite avant-garde and um you, you know just a bit out there and all about life and death and madness and solitariness and all that kind of stuff it's great so catch up before it leaves the cinema um 
those are our five bits in Jennifer Lopez news this week so good to have it back I've missed it that stupid general election ruining our JLo news I did not know that she was getting married this summer to an absolute babe station do you think so yeah God strike people I'm just never going to understand you (laughs) ever really yeah he's like a tank built no Um, well he's a very lucky man and so she's getting married this summer also in other J-Lo news I actually thought she was already married so that goes to show my J-Lo fans she was to the singer dude in the white suits yeah yeah Um, she released a new fragrance I was about to say perfume like an old person fragrance this week called Promise one of the better Girls Aloud songs. <laughs> um, they might be getting back another Girls Aloud. Oh, wow. Please. Um, and it is her 25th fragrance. What have you done with your life? <laughs> have you released 25 different brands of perfume? I Jennifer Lopez has. Anyone, any of them will ever be as good as Glow. Oh, oh Glow. <clears throat> glow. Glow is fantastic, yeah. Okay, so um, that's that. Uh, thank you for staying with us for this bumper podcast. Uh, we think it's an important conversation. If you want to support us um, and just buy some of these podcasts, patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. We got loads of new um, patrons during the general election. And hello, everyone. Welcome. This is what the podcast is usually like when we're not voting or campaigning uh, in this country. Uh, welcome. And uh, thank you for your support. This podcast is produced by Andrew Smooth Tone Mangan <laughs> at Castaway Media with support from Susie Bennett. Hi, Susie. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. And Sarah Fox did all of our design. You can find links to all of our socials on our website, unitedirelandpodcast.com. Do send us a little message if you'd like to. We do like getting them. And uh, yeah, that's it. Una's going to take the tuna chicken roll this week. I am because I think it is important to mark the passing of an absolute legend, one of the best to ever do it, Andrew Weatherall and uh, his Primal Scream uh, loaded mix, which is a banger. So RIP to a great man and somebody who's massive, massive influence, not just on British culture, but on um, music culture more broadly. It's sad to see legends pass, but what a legacy he left. I've been Una Mullally. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland, and that was... Kerry! Just what is it that you want to do? We want to be free. We want to be free to to do what we want to do. And we want to get loaded, and we want to have a good time. And that's what we're going to do. Away, baby, let's go! We're going to have a good time. We're going to have a party.
Just what is it that you want to do? I'm gonna get deep down, deep down, I said. I'm gonna get deep down, deep down. Woo, hey! What is it that you want to do? We want to get loaded, and we want to have a good time. 